Before I start my sermon, I have to kind of explain to you a bit of my warped sense of humor, so you know where we're going with this. And basically it's this, when I was growing up, um, my dad startles very easily. And when I say easily, I mean like very easily. So my brother and I, of course, we had a tremendous amount of fun with this. And one of the things, of course, we used to do when we were little is we would hide around the corner. And we could, of course, hear dad coming because it's an old crickety house and the floor is reek, you know, going back and forth. And, and my brother and I are standing around the corner. And we know what's going to happen. I mean, we're going to jump out. We're going to go, rah! And dad just going to go, Ooh, you know. And, and so we're just standing behind the corner. We're giggling and we're laughing and we're just trying not to cut up. And my dad's coming down the hallway and he's like, hey, I can hear you guys. I know you're around the corner. Still, we're hiding behind the corner, giggling and laughing. And and dad's like, I know you're there. I know you're around the corner. He does. He knows we're there. He comes around the corner. We jump out. And dad, (laughs) he's still scared. Even after he, you know, we've advertised it coming all the way down the hallway for him. He jumps back in fear. He just can't help himself. He's very focused and concentrated and determined. And anytime something sudden would happen, dad would lurch out in fear. And after a while, we, uh, my dad said to us, you know, one of these days you do that, I'm going to have a heart attack and drop over dead. And we're like, (laughs) you know, so we stopped. No more scaring dad. But the trouble is, it's Sunday afternoon, mom's made him a big meal, he's watched football, he's fallen asleep to his favorite lullaby, the sound of John Madden, and he's sound asleep in his chair and it's time to go to church or something, we're like, dad, dad, it's time to get up, Ooh, you know, we couldn't do anything but scare him. So I grew up under those circumstances, and that explains a bit of the weirdness behind me, and I just think it is hilarious, I think it is so funny when people are scared out of their minds. I mean, I just love watching it. So any of these like America's Funniest Home Videos or hidden cameras or something when the, you know, cat jumps out of the bag or whatever and people are just like, ah, I love that. <laughs> and it just drives me, it just puts me over the top. Well, sure enough, recently I discovered this one video. And it's, of course, on the great video source, not really, but YouTube. And what it is, is basically it's an old Pepsi commercial with Jeff Gordon and a Pepsi can, cam. You know, they take a can of Pepsi and they hide a camera in it. It's one of these hidden video things. If you haven't seen it, you can Google it. But I got to warn you, there's a lot of like, di- let's say this. There's a lot of dialogue that is edited out. <laughs> you know, beep. <laughs> That's all you hear is a beep. So I think it's fairly clean. But... Here's the deal, is what happens is Jeff Gordon puts on a disguise. He's a fairly trim, very professional uh, race car driver who makes his living by going like 185 to 200 miles a day, per hour a day. Like he drives fast, right? Well, they decide that they're going to go to some used car dealership and play a prank on the used car salesman. And so what they do is they get Jeff and they dress him up, they disguise him, they make him look like pretty much 
a goober, a middle-aged guy who's, you know, used to driving a minivan and doesn't have a lot of adventure going on in his life and stuff like this. No offense. That's me too. Okay. And they, he walks into this used car dealership and sure enough, the used car salesman walks out and he looks exactly like you would expect a used car salesman to look. No offense if you're a used car salesman. But he walks out there and Jeff's kind of gomming around the, this brand new Chevy, you know, Camaro. And, and the car salesman says, uh, so are you uh, drifting towards the Camaro? And he's like, oh, no, you know, th- that's way too much car for me. I'm used to something, you know, a little bit different, you know. And he plays it up and these guys like, well, you know, th- the only way to really know is to take it for a test drive. And Jeff Gordon's like, well, I guess he could, you know, it couldn't hurt, you know. So he signs the piece of paper, and then he goes out and he gets in the car. And what then they flash back and they show you is that the crew had already, like, closed roads and set up basically a racetrack with all kinds of obstacles and stuff like that, including, like, an unloading dock uh, for uh, tractor trailers, you know, one of those ramps and that goes like this. So Jeff Gordon gets in the car and the salesman, you know, he's like, buckle up. And Jeff's like, okay. <laughs> they buckle up. <laughs> and sure enough, you know, he pulls out, it's a s- standard and he pulls out and they're kind of like, burp, burp. and the guy's like, it's got a little pickup. Just be careful. And Jeff's like, all right, I'm not real used to this, you know, and all of a sudden, in the parking lot with all the other cars, he just hammers it, 360-degree spin. <laughs> and the salesman's all on. He's like, oh. He's like, you know, you might want to back off a little bit. <laughs> and he's, at first, he's very moderate. The salesman is just gentle. He's like, you might want to back off. Slow down, slow down. You're liable for any damages to the car, you know. And then out of the parking lot they go, and he's just, 100, 110 miles an hour down the road around cars that they had already planned. You know, he's spinning out. They go flying over the ramp and down. And by the end, this salesman is just like, beep. You know, he is upset. Let me tell you, he went from like, so you might want to back off a little bit, slow down, you're liable. And he is going crazy he is so scared i thought the guy was either gonna you know soil his shorts or have a heart attack or something and of course i was sitting there just like (laughs) just dying laughing and they get back to the car dealership guy runs out of the car he's like i'm calling the police i'm calling the police i'm calling the police and you know then the cameramen come around him and they block him and they show him you know what's going on here and he's like Oh, oh. And Jeff Gordon, you know, rips off his mustache and says, hang on, hang on, calm down. I'm really sorry. It's just a joke. I'm Jeff Gordon. Guy's like, oh, you're Jeff Gordon? He's like, yeah, I'm Jeff Gordon. He's like, can we do that again? (laughs) (laughs) And it was just great because, I mean, here he was, I mean, about to flip his lid. He was so angry. He was so afraid. And then, when he realized who was behind the wheel, everything changed. So once he realized who was driving, his entire perspective changed. And what was fear turned into confidence. And what was anger turned into joy. 
All because he realized who was driving this machine. Say in Psalm chapter 25, it's called a lament, which sounds like a fancy word, but basically that's a psalm that does this very thing. It starts off with the person in the passenger seat going, Ah, what are you doing? You're going to kill me. This is crazy. To all of a sudden them shifting and transitioning and realizing, Oh, look who's behind the wheel. This could actually be fun. And their feelings of fear change to confidence. And their feelings of frustration and anger turn into joy. Today I'm going to show you hopefully how to do that as we follow the psalmist's example. So, uh, as I said, what it's going to be is it's going to be a psalm of lament. And let me just, uh, before we walk through it, let me give you the general structure of a lament. This is the literary structure of a lament, and then I'll show you how ours is just a little bit different. But the reason for this is I'm going to come back around and say, okay, now this is not just a literary structure that you go, wow, that's cool. But then eventually what you will do is you will take that and you will apply it to your own life. You'll say, when I come into a position of crisis and I am lacking confidence, how should I respond? I will walk through the lament just like the psalmist does. So here are the uh, five basic parts of a lament. Obviously, it's a work of art, so not everything follows exactly and precisely. But here's the general idea. A psalm of lament looks like this. Basically, you start off with what's called an introductory cry to God. That's where the guy is, you know, in the passenger seat going, ah, what's going on? And there's a lament. There's a cry out for help, and then there's a lament. There's like, oh boy, oh boy, I do not like this. Please help. And all of a sudden, there's a, the beginnings of a transition about midway through, and you see what's called a confession of trust. And then after he's processed his emotions a bit, and after he's uh, come to a place of trust, then he's in a better spot to make a request. Say, so now that I can calm down a little bit, Lord, here's what I need. Here's what I'd like. This is how you could help me in my life. And then after he gives his request, he leaves it on the table with God and comes back around and says, okay, I will praise you. No matter what, I will praise you. So that's the basic structure of what is called a lament psalm. Uh, Today we're going to look at chapter 25 of the book of Psalms. And this psalm is by most commentators uh, reckoning a lament. And yet, if you look at it closely, you'll see that it doesn't follow that pattern precisely. And the reason for this is that not only is it a lament psalm, but it's also an acrostic. And you know what an acrostic is. It's like Walt, worship arts leadership team. You know, each letter stands for a word. And in this case, what the psalmists often do is they take the Hebrew alphabet and they just go through each uh, letter from the beginning to the end and assign uh, a poetic line or verse to it. And so it does that in this psalm. So it won't particularly follow this pattern exactly, but it contains these ideas. So instead, what you end up seeing then, this is the structure that you'll actually see in this psalm. You'll see the three-part structure And the first is a statement of trust. You'll say, okay, God, I trust you. But here's my request. And then, having made my request, I will leave it in your hands and trust in your goodness 
with a guarantee that you will do the right thing no matter what. So in other words, it's a very diplomatic way of going about things and in fact something you may want to try at home. When you're in a spot to ask somebody for something, this doesn't even have to be God. This can just be like your wife if you want to buy a new boat. Okay? Try this. I'm not saying it'll work, but here's a good start. Okay? It's 4th of July. You're like, man, I wish I had one of those. We've been saving a long time. Everything's paid off. Whatever. It's time to get a boat. Here we go. So you start not with walking into the kitchen and saying, hey, can I have a boat? (laughs) Instead, you want to walk in and say, hey, honey, you are a great wife. I trust you with money. I trust you with everything. You are such a good wife. Of course, she's smarter than that, so she knows something's coming. But the general idea is when you begin the negotiation, you don't start with your request But instead, you make a statement of trust. You make your assertion of confidence in the person that you're coming to. And that's what the psalmist does in this psalm. He's going to start out by just saying, hey, I trust you. I believe in you. I do. Yes, I have something I need here. But let me start by saying this, that I trust and believe in you. And then after you've made that clear, all of a sudden you're on the same page. You've established rapport. Your relationship is solid. Based on that, then you say, okay, now here's my request. Here's what I'm hoping for. Here's my request. I trust you, but here's my request. And then you conclude with this guarantee. And what the guarantee is in this case is basically, I know you'll do the right thing. Here's my request. This is what I'm hoping for. I'm not sure how you'll go about it, but I know based on who you are and your character that you will do the right thing. I can fully trust in you. I am so confident in who you are as a person that I know when I make this request, whatever the outcome is, it'll be for my good. And so I'm, I think I need this, but I trust in you. I'm leaving it on the table. I'm going to let you handle it. And my hands are off, and I believe, I believe that what you will do is good. That's pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, could we come to God every time like that with our request? So often our requests want to go the other way. We want to start with the request, right? Hey, God, I need... I, uh... But the psalmist shows us something very different. Let me just tell you how this worked in my life this last week. We had a uh, service last week that I felt particularly good about. I felt like the worship was good. The spirit was there. The word was communicated. The people worshiped. The gospel was expressed for the glory of God. And I was like, yes, that was a good day. That was a really good day. And there was a lot of you know, momentum and enthusiasm built up around that. I said, yes, we had a good day. And what the funny thing is, as a pastor, is once you have those you know, sort of mountaintop experiences, that was one Sunday, and all of a sudden you're thinking about the next. <laughs> like, but what are we going to do this week, right? How do we top that? I mean, that's not really the goal, right? But that's what goes through your head. So I'm coming to the Lord, and here's my request. Hey, God, I just want to explain to you, we had a really good service last Sunday, and I'm hoping that you could like do that again, because that would be really cool. Right? That's the way I want to start my request. But then I started to think about the psalm I'm supposed to preach, and the psalm doesn't start like that. Instead, it starts like this. I trust you. Wait, but what about my... Re- I trust you. I trust you. But I... I trust you. But Lord, we... I trust you. 
And so instead of coming in my next prayer to say, hey, God, could you give us a really great, great service this Sunday? Because that would be really cool. I have to start with, God, I trust you. I don't know what this Sunday is going to be like exactly. I mean, we plan and prepare, but I trust you. I don't know who's going to come or what spirit they're going to come in, whether they'll be spiritually prepared or whether they'll be out on the edge or whatever. I don't know, God, but I trust you. Let's start there. I trust you. Then my hope, my request is, of course, you know, things will go well, but in the end, I know that you've got this under control. I trust you. And, of course, that's the way it works in my life, and there's a lot of things in your life that you can apply it to as well. But let me show you how the psalmist goes about it in Psalm chapter 25. So we'll just read through it, and I'll pull out a few things, and then we'll come back around again. So uh, we'll swing it back around. We'll drive around again. Okay, never mind. Psalm chapter 25 says this. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be put to shame and let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed instead who are wantingly treacherous. Make me known your make known to me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. And for you I wait all day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, but instead, according to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He teaches the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenants and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. Therefore, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck me, pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble. Forgive all my sins. Consider, O Lord, how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Amen. Psalm 25, a psalm of David. Beautiful lament. And one of the things about the psalms, of course, is that we are human beings. We have feelings. And the writers of scriptures did too. And so, so many times people will say things like, hey, the Bible's an instruction manual, or the Bible's your rule book for life. And that sounds a little dry and wooden and blah. But the Bible is also a beautiful poetic expression of the reality of the human experience. What is life like? 
Is this thing blind to our everyday experience or is it real? This is incredibly real. It is very earthy. He feels what you feel. He experiences what you experience. He knows. And so as we go through this uh, psalm, I want you to get that and I want you to feel it. I want you to experience it as well. But I'm going to ask you, in keeping with my first illustration, to be ready to shift gears here a little. Shift gears, okay? Because the engine that is going to drive this thing forward is not actually the driving illustration, but instead it will be a building one, that of building. This last week, uh, some lumber showed up at my house. And uh, my wife, of course, saw this in the garage. And knowing me as she does, she's like, hmm. I wonder what is going on here. (laughs) It's not a lot of lumber, just some plywood and a few two-by-fours, but it showed up in my house, and my wife asked me the question, so um, what are you doing? (laughs) I'm like, well, I'm going to build something. And she's like, you're going to build something, hey? I said, well, not me, but maybe me and a friend. She's like, oh, okay. Well, when are you going to do it? Well, we found two hours on this day that both of our schedules could you know get together and i think that in that amount of time he and i his brains my brawn can get the thing done and she's like sure enough you know with as hard as you guys work i think in that two hour amount of time you can get it done what happened there well her opinion just went from one of uncertainty to you're going to build this to all of a sudden extreme confidence and the shift was that she realized who the builder is. Now, in this psalm, what we're going to see is that God is, in fact, the builder. He is driving this thing forward, and I will show you through various verses how he is constructing his project. So let's look at verse 1. It says this. It says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. What the psalmist has started out by doing is basically, in in the original language, this is an emphatic position. He said, hey, from the start, you, God, are where I'm placing my trust. This is where all the chips are going. Everything is bet on you. At this point, it is Team Yahweh and no one else. I am aligning myself with your camp. I am all in. I am fully dedicated and fully committed to you. To you, O Lord, I place my trust. It's also very relational as well, because he says in the next line, O my God. Now look, very clearly, this is OMG used in the right way. This is not the taking the Lord's name in vain or using it as um, an exclamation point at the end of your sentence, but instead it is using it to express a very close and intimate relationship. He is claiming to be completely and fully aligned with God himself. I am on board. I am in your camp. So there is his statement of trust, okay? Starts out, statement of trust. To you, O Lord, O my God, here's where it is. I am in with you. Then here's his general request. It is a request for vindication. He says, let me not be put to shame and let not my enemies exult over me. 
So there you see it. In the first three verses, you'll see this pattern that begins to repeat itself throughout the psalm. I'm not going to go through every occurrence. If you want, when you go home, you can say, hey, which statement is a statement of trust? Which one is a request? And which one is finally a confession of confidence? But for now, just see the first three as such. There is the confession of trust. There is the request. And then look at verse 3. It is indeed the statement of confidence. Indeed, none who wait for you will be put to shame. They shall be ashamed, those who are wantonly treacherous. So here is the used car salesman discovering that it is, in fact, Jeff Gordon behind the wheel. Here is the wife discovering that it is someone other than her husband who is going to build the shelves. And all of a sudden, the request, hey, my enemies are surrounding me. I'm in big trouble. I trust in you. But it's you. It's you. It's not me. It's you. And because it is you and not me that indeed I know for certain then if I wait for you, I won't be put to shame because it's you. If I wait on me and my own abilities or my hope, you know what? Things are probably going to go south in a hurry. But indeed, it is you. So is there a statement of confidence? It is based essentially on God's character. If you look at line B of verse 3, it says, They shall be ashamed who are wantingly treacherous. Treachery is the exact antithesis or opposite of what God is. God is faithful. All throughout the Old Testament, he describes himself in terms of his covenant faithfulness. His very nature, his character, his existence. Everything is tied to the fact that he is faithful. He is all-powerful, he is unchanging, he is immutable, he is omniscient, he is omnipresent, he is faithful. All the time, no matter what, he can always be counted on. That's just the way he is. And that is the complete opposite of treachery. One who changes with the political tide or whatever else. They go here, they go there, depending on what's popular, what's cool, what will serve their interest. God is the opposite. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So then, the psalmist has confidence in his request. Just like we can have confidence in ours as well. Now, look at verses 4 through 5. This is an interesting thing. It teaches us a little bit about where we're at right now as a church. One of the things that we're trying to do, we'll be emphasizing, is discipleship and multiplication. We want to grow, but not just um, numerically, but also in depth and, and to expand out into our community as well. And you look at verses 4 through 5, and the psalmist's request here is along that lines. It is for his own personal discipleship, and he's asking for that from the Lord. Now, notice the verbs that he uses to go about this. He says, make known to me your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. What I see from this and what several commentaries agreed as well is that the substance of discipleship centers largely upon teaching. In essence, what it's saying is that there is a large portion of instruction that has to happen. For example, in the building analogy, this guy's coming over to my house and he's going to help me build some shelves. I have no knowledge of how to build these shelves whatsoever. 
So if it were just me, I would probably mess up and it would take a long time and there'd be frustration and blah, blah, blah. And my wife would say, why are you doing this? But because he is with me, he can come alongside me and he can say, okay, cut here. And I get it. And then we've got the boards cut at the right length. And then we grab the plywood and the boards and we put them together. And he says, okay, use the nail gun here. Boom. She'd go, wow, that worked. Okay. And then next, we bring along, actually, we do two by fours to two by fours, not two, yeah, anyways. No plywood at this point. No plywood and nail guns. Trust me on that one. Okay, so you put the two by fours together, you bring the plywood, you bring the drills, and he says, drill here, cut here, nail here, and it works. Because he is leading me, he is instructing me, he is teaching me, he is holding my hand and walking me through this process. He is discipling me in the art of building the shelf. He is making known to me the way to do so. And this is discipleship in action. And here's what you have in verses 4 through 5. You have the psalmist asking God to teach, make known, to lead based on his character. Verses 6 and following, this is kind of the center of the psalm. And this is what I said earlier when I talked about God's covenant faithfulness. Based on who God is, his character, we can have confidence in him. Verses 6 and following says this. It says, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. In other words, they are everlasting, they are eternal, and here is the covenant faithfulness to which the psalmist will, will appeal to God. This is, in a sense, God's obligation to the psalmist. In other words, he uses the word hesed here. Now, this, word, this uh, Hebrew word hesed, you know, to us may sound like, whoa, okay, what is that word and what's going on? Well, what happens is this. Many of the translations will say mercy, some will say love, some will say kindness. And we have to be really uh, intentional about expressing this concept because when we talk about uh, love in our society, what we see is what's portrayed in the movies. So in other words, love is something, according to our media, that you can fall into and fall out of rather quickly. It is something that makes you experience something that benefits you. And it's something that you can, uh, you know, just reject or accept based on your own whims. But in the Old Testament, the idea of hesed or God's love is entirely different. It's more of a contractual arrangement wherein the, the uh, person in charge says, I am making a settled decision to do this in an unchanging way no matter what. I hesed. Or I love you. It is a stamp of covenant agreement. And so it's so radically different from, from our concept. I, I almost don't even know what to call it in our culture. Because we call it love and you see people fall in and out and in and out all the time. But this is not love in th- that sense. This is love in the most biblical, divine, and true sense. This is God's covenant love. It is an intentional, settled agreement where he says... This is who I am, and this does not change. I agree to do this. So based on this, therefore, you can appeal to it in the future. And that's what the psalmist does. The psalmist is not asking God 
to help him based on his own you know, goodness, but instead on the fact that God has agreed to love him. So, may your, uh, Lord, remember your mercy and your steadfast love, and remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love for the sake of your goodness, O God. Now, looking at the next few verses, uh, the psalmist is going to transition now into a little bit more of the discipleship and the equipping. And he says it like this. He says, he repeats his request and he says, Lord, lead me. You lead the humble in the way that is right. and You teach us, instruct sinners in the way that they should go. When I was doing this uh, construction project with my friend, uh, what happens is, you know, he has all the knowledge and I've got all the, you know, brawn or whatever. And I get in there and he says, okay, I've got these things set. So you, I want you to drill here and here and here and here. And I'm going to go out in the garage and get some more lumber. I'm like, okay, I got this, right? Drill here, here and here. So, yeah, exactly. I, I start to get ready to drill and I notice that the plywood's just a little off, like a quarter inch. It's not flush. I'm like, that's weird. Why is that? What's going on there? So I'm like, okay, I'll just get that right up against the edge, nice and tight, like so. There we go. Drill. And I figure, and I finish the bottom portion. And I look up the next spot, and I see, man, that's off just a little bit too. So you know what? Before I drill that one, Maybe I should go up there and ask him a question. So I go up and ask him. I say, you know, the, the first set was a little off. Did, did you mean to have it like that or not? Because I, I just flushed it up and went ahead and drilled it. He's like, yes. <laughs> they were supposed to be a little off. That way, when we set the plywood, which is a quarter of an inch thick, right up against it, it'll be flush. I'm like, oh, okay. That makes perfect sense. So out come the... Out come the screws and we do it again. Lord, instruct me. Forgive me. Pay attention to my mistakes. God, you know throughout this process, I am going to err. Because I'm not perfect. I'm going to make mistakes. And so part of the discipleship process ends up being, not only is it instructing you along the way, but it's also helping you fix your mistakes. And if this guy would have been like, hey, you know what, let's just not worry about that, we would have messed up the shelves. But he had to come to me and say, look, dude, or doofus, or whatever he called me, you did this wrong. You need to change. You need to switch. I can't let it keep going this way, because if I do, it'll mess everything up. So we're going to stop the process right there. I'm not mad at you. This doesn't affect me. All it means is that we got to change what you did. Like, oh, okay. I can handle that. Why? Because it's no reflection upon the builder. It wasn't the builder's mistake. He knew what he was doing. Instead, it was simply a mistake that I made. And so I had to correct it. That's it. It's not personal. It's not a big deal. It's wrong, but just get it right. And that is a large part of discipleship as well. The accountability wherein the instructor or the builder comes alongside of you and says, Hey, look, you know, I told you to do it like this. You thought you had a better way, and then you realize that my way was right after all. So let's go back, let's fix it, and let's get it right. 
Therefore, he instructs us sinners in the way. We are sinners. We mess up. We get it wrong. And God still comes alongside of us and says, hey, this is how you get it done right. Now, look at verse 11. This is where the psalm kind of comes to its climax. And it says, this is why he is doing this. All the way through, this is why the Lord is doing this. Verse, verse 11, it says, For your name's sake, O Lord, for your name's sake. In other words, in the Old Testament, you will see this phrase repeated frequently throughout the book. And basically, it is the idea of God's reputation or an honor and a shame society. It is his honor or his glory. In other words, everything that God does is motivated by the desire to bring glory to himself, and rightly so. And in the same way, everything that we do should be motivated in order to bring glory to God. So why should God disciple us? Or why should he forgive our sins? Or why should we praise him? Or why should we engage in missions? Or why should we do anything else? For his name's sake. For his glory. And so the psalmist brings it all back around again then to root it in God's creative purposes for mankind, in his covenant, in his agreement with us, and says, Lord, I'm not appealing to my own worthiness. I'm not appealing to my own character. Instead, my confidence comes not in myself, but in you, and in who you are, the unchanging and eternal God who has committed himself to his creation, to redeeming it and buying it back and fixing what we have messed up. Lord, according to your covenant, according to your mercy, according to your unchanging goodness, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my sins. Vindicate me. Deliver me. Why? Because I'm on your team. I have aligned myself with you, O Lord, my God. I'm in your camp. And if I go down, what will that look like to all of the rest of the world? looks like you went down as well. So, Lord, not for my sake, but for yours. For who you are, for your glory, for your purpose, for your creation. Lord, redeem me, deliver me, save me out of this pit. That is how the psalmist goes about it. And that is how we should go about our lives as well. And so, when you encounter a difficult experience, what I want you to do is run it through the same grid that the psalmist uses. Let me show you what that looks like. First of all, you have an experience. And then in that experience, you're a little bit overwhelmed. You're like, ah, what do I do? Oh, no. And so you cry out to God. And there's this introductory cry out to God. Our, our second slide shows all of these in order. Um, it cries out to God. And then you say, what am I going to do? Lord, please help. But yet, God, I will trust you. And there's a statement of trust. And then after you confess your trust in him, now is your opportunity to give your request. So you give your petition, but then based on his character, based on his covenant, based on his faithfulness, based on his power, based on who you know who he is, you say, okay, now I'm going to trust you. Now I'm backing off and I am believing that you, O oh Lord, are able to deliver me based on who you are. It's an amazing thing to serve such an incredible God, and we are so blessed to be able to do so. As I was concluding this sermon, I was, you know, I was staring at my wall, 
as I sometimes do, trying to think of how to conclude a sermon. And I saw the wall there, and what I saw was just a wall. And I thought to myself, you know what? And my mind started to drift a little bit, thinking about projects I had at home. And I'm like, man, if I could only fix it. And I'm like, man, I don't know how to fix that. But this guy who was over at my house, when I was working with him, when he looks at my wall, because he's been in construction, you know what he sees? He doesn't just see a wall. Instead, what he sees, he sees a layer of paint, and he sees drywall, and then he sees studs spaced evenly apart, and then he sees the wiring that runs through them, and he knows exactly how everything is intertwined. And he can say, well, there's supposed to be a wing nut there, and I can kind of tell by feeling it that there's not. And I'm like, huh? I just see a wall. And I think if you are honest, what happens is when you look at life, we're kind of like the uninitiated, you know, pastors trying to fix stuff. And God is the builder. And we run up against some great big barrier and we're just like, oh, wall. <laughs> what do I do? It's just flat. And I can't see anything. And God has designed this whole thing from the very beginning. It's his creation for his glory, according to his covenant, for his purpose. And he knows exactly what lies behind it. He doesn't just see a wall, but instead he sees the purpose, he sees the meaning, he sees the destination, the end, and how to get there. And so you run into a wall in your life, what I want you to do is run it through this grid, and instead of just freaking out and backing down, you stop and you say, whoa, God, I hit a wall here. Here's my experience. I don't know what to do. This is bad. All my enemies have risen up around me. They're trying to make things a mess. Lord, I lament. I cry out to you, O God. Please help. What am I going to do? Then as you go through that process, you watch yourself cycle down the funnel. And then you realize, you know what, God? (laughs) I'm freaking out because I'm looking at me. But when I look at you, it's all good. Here I thought I was in the driver's seat, but it's actually you behind the wheel. And you're in control and you got this. And all of a sudden, when you realize who's driving this thing, your fear turns into confidence. And your anger and frustration turn into joy. You're like, hey, Lord, this is pretty cool. Can you go faster? Do it again. I like this. Go, God, drive. This is great. Run it through the lament psalms. Take your experiences and incorporate that into your prayer life. And instead of beginning your prayer then with, oh God, here's my problem. Instead, you can say, hey, well, God, I believe. I trust in you. Based on who you are, not me, but based on you, I believe. I'm confident. Because you, oh Lord, will see this thing through. All of life, all of it, is a design-build project. And this is the way the New Testament describes us as a people and a church. Then, look, this is the way the psalmist does it. He says, hey, I formed you in your inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. We are his workmanship, a city on a hill. You are living stones being built together as a spiritual house. Look, God is the designer. He's the builder. We are the workmanship. And wonderful are your works, O Lord. My soul knows it. Very well. Our confidence in the builder leads us to confidence in the completion of the task. I am sure of this. I am sure. 
that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. God's character is our confidence because he is the one behind the wheel. He is driving this thing forward because he is building the building. We know it will be a success. In other words, Aaron Schuh says it right. You know, he says, our hope, our hope is in you to complete the project you begun for your name's sake and for your glory, O Lord. Father, we're thankful that we are your workmanship, perfectly made in your image, and yet messed up in our own account. And God, that's an interesting spot to get ourselves in. And no doubt we experience the results of that, both from within and from without, from the experiences we bring in ourselves and the experiences that others impose upon us. Sometimes, Lord, we got ourselves into our own mess, and sometimes it's something someone else uh, brought our way. But either way, God, we confess and we, we lament and we put our trust in you. So you are the one who started this thing, and you will see it through to completion. You're a good and gracious God. You are faithful to your covenant. All your works are good. My soul knows it very well. In you alone, we place our trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, Midland Free. Hope you're having a blessed Fourth of July weekend. My name is John Felice. I have the privilege of serving on our elder board. As the ushers come, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You. You are our defender. You are the one who guides us. You forgive our sins. And You are sovereign over all the nations. And we thank You for providing this community of believers to worship with, for putting each of us in this country established on Your principles, and for preserving our nation through time of attack. We ask that You would give wisdom to our city, state, and country's leaders, that you would give wisdom to our leaders at Midland Free, and also that you would give all of us at Midland Free Christ's love and to give grace to each other. Please bless this offering for doing your kingdom work here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.